Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Welcome, LBCF. We are so grateful uh, that you are here. Um, I'm excited for today. Um, as you know, LBCF, you know, we have co-pastors. Uh, we have a multiplicity of like pastoral leadership here. Not everything is centered around like a CEO pastor, which I love. That you know, we 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 are coming with just different experiences, different. Um, ideas, different thoughts, and together, you know, we are trying to figure out what God um, desires of us. And part of that is that we have a teaching team where we have different teachers uh, teach on Sundays where, you know, you're not hearing from the same person all the time. And that's, you know, part of, I think, the beauty of LBCF. And today we actually have someone that will be teaching for the first time here at LBCF, but has been teaching for many years. Uh, she's been involved in, in youth ministry for a long time, and she's been attending LBCF now for a few months. Um, she actually got connected through Mary Dorset, and I know they have a lot of uh, commonalities. Um, she's passionate about justice, mercy, compassion, and, and youth. In fact, she'll be uh, joining our youth ministry team, which I'm super excited about. And that's part of the reason, honestly, why we want you to get to know her. And today, um, you know, I'm just so happy to um, welcome for the first time, and so give her a nice welcome, uh, Kristen Keens. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you so much for having me speak today. Um, as Pastor Danny said, I got connected to LBCF through Mary. Um, we actually met on an online forum for parents of kids that are homeschooling and just kind of instantly connected. And I am so glad that she introduced me to your community. Uh, you have no idea how wonderfully unique you are. And I am just so humbled, really, to be asked to speak today. Um, but before we get into that, will you just take a moment and pray with me? Lord, we know that you are always present with us. There is nowhere that we can go that we can flee your presence. But we ask in this moment today that you would just make us intimately aware of that presence. That if there is anything that you would like to speak our, to our hearts, that our hearts would just be open to hear it. And I ask that you would, that you would even speak through this message, Lord, that if there is truth, that it would just land and that you would show us what you want to do with it. And where there isn't, that it would just roll off. Lord, we thank you for this time where we can really just sit and bask in your presence. And we ask you to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get started, I just want to ask a question to kind of get to know this group a little bit more. So just by a show of hands, where are my neat freaks in the room? Like, who are the clean, tidy people, the ones like my sister that are putting away your cup before you've even finished drinking it? Okay, we got a few of you in here. <laughs> okay, I am not among you. I wish I was, but that is not me. Now, where are my messy people? Okay, we got quite a few of those. Who's kind of like somewhere in between? Okay. Now, how many of the neat freaks and the messy people live with each other? Anybody? Okay, <laughs> nice. 
Um, so we all fall somewhere on the spectrum there. And uh, I think that's probably true in most families. In my family, I have two kids, uh, two little girls, and like many siblings, they could not be more different. My youngest, Evangeline, this girl, like, she just is a mess. If she is painting, she is not just painting the paper. She's not even just painting the walls. She is like painting her belly button. She's getting the bottoms of her feet. She's licking the paintbrush. She, she's disgusting, okay? And then my, my older daughter, Adeline, she was very different even at that age. She did not like to get messy. She did especially did not like to get her hands messy. And this, this really came to a head one day when I was leading an outdoor learning through play program. The lesson of the day was making mud. So I knew, I had the foresight to think that my daughter and some other kids that might have sensory issues might not really love that lesson. And so I went ahead and I made some forest putt, really just fancy Play-Doh with some spices in it so it smells nice, for them to play with. And I thought I had it covered, but as I started the message, or not the message, sorry, the lesson, and I, uh, I mixed some water into dirt and I reached my hands in to squeeze the dirt, my little, at the time, two and a half year old let out the most ungodly scream. It echoed through the entire park. Because I had anticipated that she would not be okay getting messy. But what I hadn't anticipated was she wouldn't be okay with me getting messy either. And I think about that a lot, and I think about how we can really fear that in our lives. We can really view human interactions like that. Because somewhere along the way, most of us learn that mess is bad. That's why we hide it. We do that frantic cleaning before people come over so that we can try to convince them that our house always looks like this. We have drawers or maybe even rooms. For me, it's one bathroom in the back of our house that guests will never see. And if you don't have any of that, please meet me afterwards and teach me your ways because I really, really need it. Um, but we, we all struggle with mess and yet we all try to hide it. And that can be so very dangerous to authentic spiritual life. We really wanna look like we have it together. Now, Jesus had something to say about this. You see, Jesus offered abundant grace to the humble people who knew they didn't have it together. But to those who were really focused on looking like they did, especially to the leaders in the community, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the experts in the law who, who thought they were doing it right, he offered something different. He offered judgment. And he says something pretty pointed to them at one point. He says this in Matthew 23, Verse 27, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Now let's not breeze over that. Let's really sit in that image for a minute. He is saying to these people, these experts in the law, that they are like 
tombs that are painted beautifully. They look, they look pretty on the outside. But once you get beneath that, once you see what is underneath, it is literal death, rotting corpses. This is a graphic image, and it is a harsh condemnation of the Pharisees. But it's also a pointed lesson to us about authentic spirituality. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in people looking the part. He didn't want people to look perfect. He wanted to get to what was underneath. And to do that, to bring life to that, he had to be okay with coming face to face with all of the messiness, the ugliness, the sin, even the dead parts inside of us and touching them. And that was something that was incredibly countercultural in his day. Because the Jewish people at Jesus' time, they were somewhat obsessed with avoiding the mess and keeping themselves very separate from it. And this in large part has to do with the Old Testament concept of clean and unclean. There are countless laws in the Bible about things that were unclean and things that were clean. And uncleanness was an undesirable state. And this is something I want to take a moment and look at. And before we move on, it's important to understand that the word unclean, when we're talking about the Old Testament laws, it's not talking about physically being unclean. And it's not even always talking about sin. Sometimes there is an overlap between sin and uncleanness, but sometimes there are not. There were countless things that could make you unclean. There were lists of foods, lists of clothing, molds, and there were even just life experiences, such as having a baby that could make you unclean. Now, there are many theologians that debate, well, what made one thing unclean and another thing not? And to be honest, there's not consensus among them. Some say that it had to do with the separateness of Israel, that the unclean things were things that looked a lot like the pagan cultures around them, and those were the things that they wanted to keep them separate from. Other theologians say, no, that's not it. It really had to do with life and death that the things that brought death were things that were seen as unclean. And this explains why, for example, when someone was bleeding, they were considered unclean. Because to the Jewish people at that time, they viewed life as in the blood. And so to be bleeding would be less alive. And then there's another group of theologians that say it didn't have to do with any of that at all. It's completely arbitrary, which sounds kind of strange to us until they make the point, well, what did Israel do to be chosen in the first place? That maybe there's a lesson in that. Now, I'm not here today to solve this debate of what made things clean and unclean, but one thing that everyone agreed on was what it meant to be unclean. You see, being clean was a ceremonial state in which you had access to God. It was a state in which you had access to the religious life and community at the time. And to be unclean was a state in which you did not. And this was something that they took incredibly seriously. 
and not without good reason. Because in Leviticus, they were given this, this law. It says, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that keep them unclean, make them unclean. So they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. So those are pretty serious words. And it gives a little insight into why this was so important to them. It's also important for us to understand that uncleanness was not a permanent state. As I said, there were things that could make you unclean, and they could make you unclean for a day, a week, months. And there were rituals of cleansing to restore you into the community. But even so, it was not a desirable state, and it was something that was avoided. In fact, it was avoided so much by the religious leaders that the religious leaders of the day, they actually put laws around the laws so that you would never even accidentally do something that you shouldn't. And we can actually see a really good example of this that has actually persisted um, into today's kosher laws. So one of the main tenets of kosher law is that you do not eat dairy and meat together. So you will never have a cheeseburger if you are following a kosher diet. It is a lot easier to follow a kosher diet if you're a vegan. <laughs> um, but where does, where does this rule come from? Well, it actually comes from a list in Deuteronomy of unclean and clean foods. And in Deuteronomy 14.21, it says this. It says, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, again, there's debate on why that was. Some say it was because it looked like the pagan rituals surrounding fertility in the area. Some say that it had to do with the cruelty of something that was meant to bring life, a mother's milk being the means of its demise. But whatever the reason, this was an unclean food that was to be avoided. But what they did was they made a law around the law. They said, we will never eat dairy because if you never eat dairy and meat together, what will you never do? You will never accidentally eat a young goat that was boiled in its mother's milk. See, the Pharisees, if there was a pothole that they didn't want you to step in, they didn't put a caution cone over it. They put a mile-wide police tape around it to keep people from stumbling into it. They went to great lengths to avoid uncleanness, which is what makes how Jesus interacted with people that society deemed as unclean so very interesting. Now, there are countless examples in the Bible, but for the sake of time today, I'm just going to focus on a few of them. And the first we find in Matthew 8, 1 through 3. It says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, a large crowd followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand, and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Now to really understand the gravity of this moment, we need to look back at the Levitical laws about defiling skin diseases, which is what leprosy fell under. In Leviticus 13, it says this, it says, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. And as long as they have this disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone, 
and they must live outside the camp. And yet, this man comes to Jesus. He breaks the rules and he brings his uncleanness right up to Jesus' feet. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't reprimand him. Instead, he heals him. But what I find so very interesting is the how. Because there are countless miracles in the Bible where Jesus heals people. And if there is one rule to how Jesus heals people, it's that there are no rules to how Jesus heals people. Sometimes he spits in someone's eye. (laughs) Sometimes he simply says a word. In other instances, the person who is healed is not even present. Jesus did not have to reach out and touch this man to heal him. And yet he chose to. And I think there is an incredibly powerful lesson in that choice if we pay attention. And then when we move on into the very next chapter of Matthew, in chapter 9, we come across yet another unclean person. It says, while he, while Jesus was saying this, a synagogue leader came to him and knelt before him and he said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. And as he's on his way there, he has yet another interaction with a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And it says this, it says, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Now think about this for a moment. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. And if you remember what I said earlier, Bleeding was a state in which you were unclean. For 12 years, she has not been able to participate in the spiritual life of her community, and she is desperate. In Mark, the same story is told, and he tells us that she has spent everything she has seeing doctors to try to be healed, but instead of being healed, she has gotten worse. And now we see her in this moment literally pushing through a crowd. And in case you're not aware, Uncleanness is contagious. Anyone who touched someone who was unclean was also made unclean. And yet here this woman is in the midst of a crowd pushing through to get to Jesus, quite possibly making everyone around her unclean. And she's trying to get as close as she can to touching him without. She's touching the hem of his cloak. And it says that in that instant she was healed. And how does Jesus react? Now, he could have been angry with her. He could have been upset or outraged that she was literally spreading her uncleanness to everyone around her. Or, perhaps a kinder reaction, he could have just let it be a quiet moment between her and between him. He could have just walked on. She would have known she was healed. He would have known. And everyone else would have been none the wiser. And yet, that's not how he chooses to respond. And I like the way Mark tells it. In Mark 5, verses 30 through 32, it says this. It says, At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned to the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched me? 
But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He calls attention to her act, but not to condemn her, to praise her, and to share this testimony with everyone around. And then he continues on his way to the home of this synagogue leader whose daughter has just died. And before we get to what happened in that home, I just want to go back for a minute and take a look at the specific ask of that synagogue leader. He says, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Come and put your hand on her. That's a big ask. And this man is a synagogue leader, so he knows what he's asking. But in case you don't, let's look back at Numbers 19 to the very specific rules about touching a dead body. It says this, it says, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with water on the third day, and on the seventh day they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they will not be clean. They will fail to purify themselves after touching the human corpse. They defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel. Because the water of the cleansing has not been sprinkled on them, they are unclean, and their uncleanness remains on them. Come and put your hands on her. This would make Jesus unclean for seven days. This would require a ritual cleansing. And yet he doesn't hesitate. He walks into this home, and in perhaps what is one of the most famous miracles of the Bible, he heals this little girl. This is how it happens. It says in Matthew, it says, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in, and what did he do? He took her by the hand, and she got up. Now, this is powerful in itself, but for me, it's made so much more powerful when we understand a small detail. And it has to do with the laws regarding priests in the Old Testament, those intermediaries between God and his people of whom Jesus has been called the great high priest. In Leviticus 21, it tells us this. It says, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative, such as a mother, a father, his son or daughter, his brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him only by marriage, and so defile himself. A priest was only allowed to make himself unclean for the closest of relatives, those who literally shared his blood. And yet Jesus takes this little girl by the hand. And I think that small act is so revelatory of his heart for us and of the incredible paradigm shift that came with him of our relationship to God. 
But what does all this un talk of uncleanness have to do with us today? We don't follow Old Testament law. We don't do ritual cleansings before we come to church. We don't worry about unclean and clean foods. But I wonder, how often do we view ourselves as unclean, as unworthy? And what impact does that have when we do? How often does it paralyze us in fear and make us afraid to come into community and really be seen as our messy selves? How often does it make us uncomfortable to just sit and really bask in our belovedness in God's presence because maybe we feel like we don't belong there? Maybe we're afraid of what he might see or worse, reveal. Afraid to really bring the ugly and the messy and even the dead parts of ourselves into the light. Our mistakes, our fears, even our doubts. Especially if we feel like they are our fault. And so the question is, do we allow these things to paralyze us in fear, staring in shame at our brokenness, or do we take heart from these stories of Jesus' interactions with unclean people? Do we realize that like him, we do not have to run from the messy and the ugly. We do not have to hide it. He didn't run from it because he knew what his touch could do. Even if those who came to him only hoped. And sometimes that's all we have, isn't it? Just that small hope that that is enough. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is an interaction between Jesus and a father, a desperate father whose son has been afflicted by fits and seizures for years that have threatened his life. And he comes to Jesus out of this desperation and he just asks him if he can do anything. And Jesus responds this way. He says, everything is possible for him who believes. And then the man, he says what I think is one of the most honest prayers in the whole Bible. And this is how Mark tells us he responds. It says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus didn't ask for perfect followers. He didn't even ask for perfect faith. Because faith can be so fragile. We have times when we, we have a strong, strong faith. We literally believe that we could move mountains. But if we're honest, there's also times where we are in real lows and we don't even know if we believe at all. And I don't know where everyone in this room is on that spectrum today. But the incredible thing is that it doesn't matter how strong our faith is. Jesus said the size of a mustard seed was enough because it isn't the strength of our faith that matters. It's what or who we place it in. And Jesus, he knew who he was. And again, he knew what his touch could do. So all he asked was that we come. Because he is the one who trades beauty for ashes. 
He is the one who transforms and heals our hearts as we know his more. And yet so often we get it backwards and feel like we need to transform ourselves first before we can come and sit at his feet. We are so like my little toddler screaming that her hands are dirty, but also screaming, do it myself if I try to help her clean them. I still love her. <laughs> but we all need help. We need help from Jesus, and we need help from the people that he loves us through. But it can be so scary to be vulnerable. Being real about our messiness, it can be embarrassing at best or downright painful at worst. But it can also be so good and so beautiful when we are. Because in each of those stories that we read today, something fundamentally shifted that brought people back from the dead, both physically and metaphorically, when people were real about their uncleanness, when they risked the scary consequences and just came. They were restored not only physically and not only in their relationships with God, but also in their relationships with each other. And that is a gift not only to those people, but the whole community. And the same is true for us. This fear of being unclean, it can be so isolating. We may not stand off anymore at a distance shouting, unclean, unclean, but what do we do when we feel that way? We withdraw. Shame whispers this lie that we're the only one, that if others just knew, that we would be utterly shunned, that we would be unacceptable but there is something powerful that breaks that lie. When, instead of hiding our mess, we allow it to be seen. When we admit the struggle and ask for help. Well, I guarantee you that whatever your struggle is, whatever your mess is, you're not alone. And it brings life to you and it brings life to others to know it. when we admit that we don't have it all together, we become safe for others to bring their messiness to. Shame dies and real authentic community begins when we become okay with getting messy like Jesus was. But I wanna close with just a thought that I know I've had and maybe some of you have. And that is, well, what if my mess is just too messy? What if I'm afraid to even let it be cleaned because there are gonna be stains on the floor that just can't be wiped away? Well, I'd like to answer that by telling you a little story. Um, I think we have a picture here of a mug. So I fell in love with this mug, a random thing, uh, years ago. I saw it in a store and I loved it. But you ever see something that you love and you're like, I'm not gonna buy it today, I'll buy it another day. And so I didn't buy it. And this happened several times and then when I finally went to buy it, it was gone. <laughs> and I, I was really bummed about this and I told my husband about this and years later, 
for our eighth anniversary, he found this mug on eBay and he bought it for me as a gift. Um, and I have that mug here today. Um, I had that mug for about, I'd say maybe two weeks. Um, and now it's in pieces. <laughs> because I also have a beautiful three-year-old daughter who liked the mug too. <laughs> um, and um, when that mug broke, was there a little pang in my heart? Yeah. Yeah, there was. But there was also something else that you might not expect. There was a little bit of joy and excitement because I had put into place in our house a practice. My kids break things all the time. And so instead of becoming upset about it, what I started doing is collecting the broken pieces. And I put them in a bin and I'm creating a mosaic out of them. And one day that mosaic is gonna be a testimony to their beautiful childhood. And frankly, that mug needed, or that mosaic needed some color, and these are some really beautifully colorful pieces to add to it. And honestly, I know that years from now when I look back, that mosaic is going to be so much more meaningful to me than this mug ever could be. And I really believe that God's heart for us is like that. Sometimes there are things that are broken and we can't put them back together the way they were before. But it doesn't mean they can't be beautiful. It doesn't mean they can't be good. One of my favorite qualities of God is that he's a redeemer. That he takes the broken things and he makes something new. Now I am not a person who ascribes to the philosophy that everything happens for a reason. In fact, I actually think that that can be harmful. But what I absolutely believe is that God takes even the worst things, even the things that we think are beyond redemption, and he brings beauty and goodness from them. And I truly believe that in every mess, in every bit of our brokenness, there is an opportunity that Jesus invites us into to create something new and beautiful with him. And there's great hope in that. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that you, that you don't ask us to be perfect, that you love us in our imperfection, that you love us through the cracks. And we pray that we would just know your heart more, that we would let that just seep into all those broken places and be transformed by it, and that in turn we might be able to show that love to others and be safe places for them to bring their brokenness as well. Thank you so much that you are a great and powerful redeemer. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Kristen, thank you so much. Um, there was just so much that she shared that was, um, it's made me really think. I mean, one of the things that I, I thought of was when Mary was talking about Kristen, she said that, um, Kristen was one of the first women to graduate from Asbury Seminary in a time where, you know, change was happening. And, and I see Kristen as someone that, like, um, like is in the, in the trenches who, who wants to be there in, in bringing positive change to the world. And, you know, she asked this question, um, you know, what do I do when, 
what do we do when we feel unclean? And I know in my mind, when she asked that question, um, one of my default things to do is to go into my daydreaming world. There's times when I feel rejected, when uh, people um, make me feel like I'm unloved and unacceptable. That I start to imagine this make-believe world where I am right and they are wrong. I begin to daydream that I'm this perfect person with my thoughts, with my actions, all like perfect and, and beautiful. And in my daydream world, I am fully acceptable by everyone and that my enemies are proven wrong. And it's a world I, I enter into sometimes because I need to escape and feel like I am loved. Um, and it, it's a, I know whenever I enter into that fantasy world, um, I know that there's something off. And when I catch it in time, it becomes this place that actually God reminds me um, that my thoughts might be straying away from the presence of God. And I think the beauty of communion is one of those um, beautiful actions that can recenter us. Because even though my reality might be that people are distancing themselves from me, and maybe it's because of a fault of my own that I have actually sinned against someone, that the communion is a time when we take the, um, when, when we take the parsley to remind us of our sin, of our death. And then when we move from taking the parsley to the bread and the wine, it's a reminder to us in the same way, I suppose, that Jesus touched the woman and he touched the little girl who had died. The communion, if you can think about it today, is a way if you are feeling today unclean. If you feel today that you were unloved and that you have just messed up too many times in life and you begin to play mind games in your head, Communion and coming to the table is a time where Jesus reaches out and touches you. He touches every single one of us. And he says, you are clean. You are forgiven. You are loved. And so before you come up today, um, kind of think through some of those places but Kristen, you know, asked those questions. You know, where, where are you struggling? Where are you playing mind games? Where are you fantasizing and daydreaming? You don't have to daydream. You don't have to live in the fantasy world because Christ has come. Christ touches us. Christ forgives us. You are beautiful. You are perfect. God makes us clean. And so I'd like to call the worship team to come up now as they um, lead us again in a time of worship. And if we can have the communion, people come up. Um, and take your time coming up to the table today. I'd like us first to ponder um, just some of the things maybe God's Spirit um, 
like led us to when Kristen was speaking. Think about some of the questions. And then when you come to the table, think about the meaning of the parsley. Think about the meaning of the bread and the wine. And receive the love of God.